Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. Also, we'd love to invite you to a Zoom meeting this Friday night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're interested, email SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com and we'll send you the meeting information and password. We hope to see you this Friday. Hi everybody, I'm MG and I'm a sex and love addict. And I'm really excited to introduce Ella. And uh, she is someone that I met when I was, uh, she lived here in Houston. And I have just been so very honored to see her grow and just work this program with a lot of poise, a lot of grace. And I've seen her like move cities and have babies and, you know, get in, uh, you know, and, and partnerships and just, you know, really just have a lot of challenges. But, you know, even with all these challenges, I've just seen her really kind of stay in the center of her program. And so I'm really honored and proud to introduce Ella tonight. Ella, take it away. Thank you so much, MG. Thank you, everyone, for having me. Um, My name is Ella. Um, I would say my complete rap sheet on SLAA is that I'm a sex and love addict. I'm a fantasy addict. I'm a codependent. I'm an anorectic. Um, Basically, I check off every single box in this program. And um, I kind of came here not exactly kicking and screaming, but a little bit delusional and very much in my will. Um, I started the program in 2012 of August, so to be nine years in August, and it's been a pretty wild ride. Um, So because I have a little bit more time than usual, I thought I would share kind of a little bit of my history and sort of like what not set me up to be a sex and love addict to qualify for this program, but kind of what predisposed me and then what happened and then what it was like to, to be in recovery early and then what it's like now, sort of the journey. So I'll start off by saying that I feel like I was born into a culture of trauma, you know, a lot of resilience as well, but being a Jewish person, you know, encountering centuries, if not millennia of persecution, Um, a lot of instability, a lot of, you know, just like insecurity and trauma and violence. I feel like, you know, all of that trauma still lives in my body and it's something to deal with and it's something that generations of people before me dealt with. Just never feeling like there was essentially like safety or security, having to prove your worth, having to essentially like get approval from society. So that's just something. Um, I would say that sex and love addiction runs in my family. Um, My great-grandmother, Ella, who I'm named after, actually committed suicide after her third husband died. And sort of like the story around her death was like she just couldn't see surviving without a man. Which, you know, given the, like, historical context, like, that's, I think that's, that's understandable given, like, how women were set up to live in terms of having to depend on a man. But that was just, like, the rhetoric that I grew up with. 
Um, I'm pretty sure that my parents would qualify for this program. I'll get into that. But um, my mom, I think, had tendencies that would um, allow her to recover in this program. I found letters basically that I could have cut out from my journal um, right before I got into this program. Um, but I can share about that in a little bit. Um, also, I just wanted to add, um, I started I started this fellowship in the Bay Area and somebody I remember started, shared their, started their share was an older gentleman by sharing how his astrological sort of profile set him up to be in this program. So I thought that was really interesting. And it really applies to me, you know, as a Libra, I'm very into relationships. I can tend towards people pleasing. My moon's in Leo, so I'm all about drama and making it about me. And you need to witness me. And if you're not caring for me, I'm going to get really angry. My Venus is in Scorpio, so it's all about like passion and depth. Um, but like, I'll, I want I want that passion like any cost. And my rising is in Pisces, so I'm all about fantasy. So just just a lot going on. Um, anyway. So where to begin? So anyway, I will say that my story starts really young. Um, my parents were, you know, two kind of like um, upper, upper middle class Jewish folks, planned on having a kid, had me, got married pretty quickly after meeting. And my grandmother was like, it's time to have a baby now. So they had me. My parents were, were pretty, I would say they were workaholics, so they worked a lot. My dad worked 80 hours a week. Um, when he first started as a as a doctor, my mom worked a lot too, and you know, um, I was told that I really like, you know, I think I had this sense of longing of from a very early age, and I was told that like I would wait up at night to see them, and wouldn't go to sleep. So my parents took me to a doctor because they really needed sleep, and the doctor prescribed basically a, a sleeping pill for a toddler. So that was just kind of like the early context of my longing. Like my needs aren't necessarily going to get met here. Even though my parents were very doting, they just, they weren't around a lot. They couldn't be. Um, and they had kind of like a fiery, tempestuous relationship. I know that my mother was, you know, physical with my dad. There was just this feeling uh, my dad described, like my mother would make him go on diets and do all these things and wear these fancy clothes to like impress her friends. And it was never enough for her. Um, and which I can totally relate to. And then my mom got sick and she got cancer and basically their lives were either work or basically finding the best hospitals all over the country so she could get treatment for her leukemia. So that left me in the care of a caregiver who was both domineering and ever present, but also abusive and cold. And she really got it instilled in my head that, you know, if I had needs that was shameful that my parents did not want to be around me and that I was responsible for their pain and that if I showed my pain that, you know, um, that I would make things worse. And, you know, she would say things like my dad came home. She'd be like, he doesn't, he, he needs a break from you. He doesn't want to be around you. I think she kind of, I don't know. I like she had some sort of like weird twisted plan. I'm not really sure what it was, but she would like take me to her parents' house. So I wouldn't see my dad anyway. Um, so that was kind of the stage was like, people are either abusive and present and domineering or they're removed, like the people that you love, but you have to like pine for them. They're not gonna be close to you. People like my dad and my mom. My mom ended up dying. She passed away when I was um, a little bit over five. My dad ended up firing that babysitter because she was embezzling a ton of money. Um, and anyway, yeah, that that really set me up. Um, I remember my fantasy starting when I was in kindergarten, you know, pretty benign fantasies but like fantasizing about people in my life and what it would be like if they picked me up in school at school and we went on dates and such and you know like 
I had friends that said like, oh yeah, in kindergarten you like talked about when, you know, you came into school and you talked about like kissing Michael Jackson the night before, you know, so pretty innocuous things. But for a six year old, I was, I was pretty deep into fantasy. You know, there was just this feeling of like wanting to be rescued from my own life, you know, and I've had a therapist tell me, um, you know, you're, you're not really sure if you, if you want to be here, like if you want to be incarnated. And I really, really got that statement because I think once my mom died, I was just like, I don't know if I want to be here. Like I, I need somebody to sort of like secure me, like physically to this earth. I need somebody to like, tell me like, you know, like make it worthwhile for me. So yeah, a lot, a lot of fantasy in like elementary school. I was definitely a people pleaser and approval addict, really sensitive. My dad got remarried. Um, my stepmother was kind of also cold and domineering and we didn't get along. She wanted to adopt my younger sister, not me. And there was just always a triangle, like me and my stepmom and my dad, or me and my stepmom and my sister. So I was just, I, I remember spending so much time in my room, crying alone, just wanting to be rescued, you know, and just in a lot of fantasy. Like if I lived in a different time and place, and then once I started listening to R&B, like Boys to Men, it was like, if I just had that special person, like that would make my life worth living, you know? And then middle school came and the hormones started popping and it was all about just sort of like chasing these unavailable dudes. And it was like, I love the chase. I love that feeling like just getting to like, oh, maybe he likes me, but then if he actually actually liked me, I'd be like, ooh, that's, that's weird. Like, nope. And most of the time they didn't like me, you know? Um, I didn't feel like I was like the atypical, like white girl society approved body type. You know, I was always kind of like the best friend in the wings, the funny girl, the girl that people like, you know, made fun of sometimes. Um, Yeah, that was middle school. And then high school was like starting to be like, you know, like same thing, like chasing unavailable dudes. I was always the best friend, the best friend that would have sleepovers with these, you know, these men that I thought were like gorgeous. Um, And we were friends, you know. And then I would have these, like, sort of, like, clandestine, like, trysts with these high school dudes, these, like, dudes. And now I'm like, ugh, like, I, I, I literally just took what I could get, you know. I didn't, I didn't really, like, respect them, you know. I didn't know what that looked like. Um, so, yeah, that was high school. I didn't have a relationship. And then um, I went on a trip with my family to Italy. And that was, like, it was, like, finding... Like it was like my my slaw crack, if you don't pardon this, the expression. But I moved to Italy, and all of a sudden it was like, whoa! Like I felt like a woman. Like I had a body. Men were following me down the street. I was like, oh my god, this is it! Like I've arrived. People appreciate me now. And I met my first boyfriend. I remember he was working in a market, and he made some sort of like joke, um, and that was it. You know, we went out that night. We went out that whole week. You know, he would arrive three hours late sometimes intoxicated, sometimes on other drugs, but I was just like hooked. You know, he was wild, he was spicy, he was from Iran, so he was a refugee, so he had this past, he had like a a really like challenging relationship with his mom, with society and all this pain. He was a renegade and I was just like hooked. I wanted to be like his girlfriend and like deep down his mom and save him and you know, so basically we had known each other a week, but that was it. Like I went back to high school and I was like, I'm moving to Italy. I'm going to go to art school and I'm going to be with this person I've known for a week. And that was that. And we would talk on the phone. Sometimes he would disappear for a week. Uh, then he told me that he had actually um, had sex with his roommate and she was the one paying the money. But I still stayed with him. 
remember I stole money from my dad and I paid his rent one time. Um, and then, you know, a week before I was supposed to go, he was like, I don't actually want you to come. And, you know, I freaked out, but I was like, you know, I don't think you really mean that, you know? Um, so I showed up and, um, lo and behold, it was, it was a mess, you know, um, it was, it was just this ping pong of like avoidance, uh, shouting, you know, him getting angry, me just like try, you know, walking on eggshells and trying to do everything, you know, to basically like get him to love me. I remember just spending my whole day, like just, I was just like, it, it would, it just completely evolved around him. Like I would wake up, I would walk, I was in like Italy, I was in this beautiful city and all I would care about is like, when is this person going to get off work? When can I go and like spy on him, you know? And eventually we broke up. He was like, I don't, I can't be with you. I can't be with anybody. I'm depressed. And then I started um, basically seeing like a slew of other men. You know, I didn't know them. They were also all from all different places. And, you know, I had fun at times, but I was, I was still living with this person. We were broken up and I was, you know, dating other people and basically still waiting for this person to come back around. You know, we were, I was, I was brain checking heavy. So anyway, that relationship lasted on and off for about a year. Um, we ended up getting back together after he dated the person that was the opposite of me, the tall blonde person. He was like, I needed to get that out of my system, you know, and eventually I decided that I had had enough, you know, and so I moved on to the next person who was kind of the opposite. Um, I was more avoided in that relationship. Um, he was more present. He was also an addict, I believe was an alcoholic. Um, the other characteristic I should name is that um, the first person I dated had like a very sort of like warm family that I was drawn to. One of the things my, my therapist shared in later years, she was like, you pick these people from like cultures that were more forward and, um, you know, because you needed to like access your grief and like you needed these people to like help you move your grief out of your body because I came from a culture where like, I was not taught how to grieve. So I basically just like stuffed all of it down and like found people that I could like reenact my trauma, reenact the abuse so I could have a reason to grieve, you know, I could have a, and a context to grieve in. So anyway, yeah. So I got into another relationship with somebody that wasn't available and, um, while I was still being in touch with my first qualifier. Um, and I dated this person, we talked about marriage and children. We moved in together. I was 20. Uh, we were living in Mexico, actually, because I went to Mexico thinking, like, if I just go to another country, uh, geographics are definitely part of my style. If I just go to another country, then I can forget about this person. And I can start over and I can meet somebody that loves me. So I dated this other person. I didn't like him or respect him. He also came from an alcoholic addict family. I loved his family. Um, they were amazing, but I didn't I wasn't really into him. Um, and I basically just kind of like strung him along and strung myself along and just got deeper and deeper committed until um, I was kind of like, you know, this isn't really it. I don't know, you know, and I decided to do a study abroad program that summer in Chile. And he was like, please don't cheat on me. And I was like, no, you know, I'm not going to. First day I got there, I met somebody, didn't really like him or respect him. Also had kind of a, a traumatic story. Um, he was trying to raise money for himself um because the government had basically um raised the tuition rates yeah so i started sleeping with that person so anyway this partner came to visit me in the states it was his first time in the states and then found out he hacked into my email and found out that i was cheating on him that was a whole mess 
you know, um, he ended up getting physically abusive. Um, I kicked him out. And then I sort of, you know, I, I just could not, I just physiologically could not be alone. So I ended up, you know, inviting him back into my life, even though I was not into him. And I used his abuse as sort of a pretext to be like, uh, you know, I, I like you, I hate you, I like you, I hate you. And um, I got pregnant with him. I got an abortion. Um, you know, that's part of my history of getting pregnant and having an abortion, um, which I can get into later. But anyway, um, you know, I was still with this person, but then I would go out. You know, I remember going home with somebody I uh, met in a taxi, just like going to the grocery store and cruising for people, you know, and I was actually going to school in Montreal. And that was just like the fantasy was great because there's people from all over the world that spoke different languages, a lot of refugees, a lot of people with like really traumatic histories. And I just have a history of sort of meeting men with really you know, uh, traumatic past that I can sort of try and rescue, you know, financially and otherwise, which I did. Anyway, I graduated college. I moved back to Pittsburgh where I'm from, you know, uh, was cruising for dudes. I remember like going into Whole Foods and just like, it was like, I was there for food and I was there for men. Like that, that's what I was there. And my life just revolved around that going out at night. And then I met probably my most serious qualifier. Uh, it's interesting because he had met my sister first and they had sort of had a moment and then that didn't happen. Um, but him and I met, he had just gotten out of two back-to-back three-year relationships. So he was, he had shared with me kind of that he was unavailable, but also available for me. And that was like kryptonite for me. Um, and yeah, we started to spend time with each other. Um, he was like, he was kind of like, um, he was like a monk sort of meditating alone in the forest that had everything that he needed, you know, and he was spiritual and he was independent and he also had mommy issues and he was, you know, physically very attractive. And I actually really liked him and respected him. And we, you know, we had a very, very sort of like quick and fast romance. And I remember there were red flags, you know, in the beginning, like him sharing, he wasn't available, him asking if, you know, like, what if I had, you know, one of my ex-girlfriend's babies, like, how would that be for you? You know, um, and everything was great until um, I remember his friend died and he went back home. He was also not from the States. And once he came back, he was just completely emotionally unavailable. He, you know, he was just like, I can't date anybody. I can't be any, you know, be with anybody. And I was heartbroken and crushed and I could just not let go. I just remember like any pretext to see him, you know, like I wanted to drop this off to you. I left this at your house. You know, I just kept doing it. You know, and so we just kept this back and forth. And, you know, it was like, I lived for the tra- the chase. I lived for the drama. You know, I lived for the, like, you know, he was great at being like, oh, like, maybe I'll be with you next year. Like, once I'll be ready, then we'll be with each other. You know, um, and then I actually got pregnant in that relationship as well. And I was like, oh, my God, this is it. Like, we're going to we're gonna move in. We're going to have a baby. We're going to have a house, you know. And that didn't happen. You know, at first he was like, yeah. And then he was like, actually, like, we can't have a baby. These are all the reasons. We're not ready wasn't conceived in the right spiritual manner and I remember like um going to the abortion clinic and he stayed outside and read psalms because that's what he needed to do for his physical health and I went inside and I did that by myself so but at the time I was like I couldn't say anything because I was so afraid of of, like pushing him away but anyway his consolation prize for me was that we could move in together also because he needed a place to live so we lived together I paid more of the rent 
it was, you know, just a lot, a lot of back and forth. Like some days he would be there, he'd be present, and then he would always withdraw. And I would just, it was like my, my world would end, you know, and we got pregnant again, the same cycle happened, you know, we, we did this dance for six years. Um, but anyway, um, sort of like three years into it, I decided like, I, I had enough, you know, I decided I'm going to go on a trip, I'm going to go to Israel, I'm going to like connect to my culture. And lo and behold, I met somebody else um, who was more of like more available you know i have this pattern i either date like avoidance or i like pine after or i date more like people that show like more addicty behavior um like substance abuse and or love addiction that i like sort of mother and secretly hate so that was the case with this person but decided i'm just going to go for it i'm just going to go halfway across the world and be with this person um so i sort of like was ending the relationship with my qualifier um previous to that and then also dating this new person and my life I just it was just like in shambles I remember I couldn't sleep I couldn't eat I I just could not let go of either one of them um I remember I had health issues that developed at that time because I was just so stressed my body was in fight or flight so I ended up coming back from Israel I felt so guilty like I did not want to be with that person that I met in Israel but I felt so guilty for leading them on that it took me like six months to break up with him um anyway I could not see myself living in the town with my qualifier was too small and like everything reminded me of him so I pulled uh two more geographics I went to Hawaii and I was like oh if I'm in the middle of the South Pacific I'll be fine it was like the most lonely place to be for a sex and love addict who was active away from her qualifier I was so sad and I was still in touch with my qualifier at that time and then I moved to Oakland California and that's kind of where I hit one of my or like one of my many rock bottoms um I got into this um, dance and percussion community, and it was in a community that was like high drama, high sexualizing, um, lots of cheating. And I met somebody that was basically looking to get out of their relationship with their wife. Um, this actually wasn't the first time I've had a relationship with somebody that was married. Um, and we met, and I wasn't really into him either. But also, he, you know, he had a traumatic past. Um, his sister had died. Um, he was from a fairly um, like economically challenged um, neighborhood in Brazil. And, you know, he was domineering, he was passionate. Um, and that was pretty much it. You know, he left his wife, he moved in with a friend, he expected to move, it, move into with him. I, I, by that point, I was like, I do not like you. I'm scared of you. He was pretty emotionally abusive, but I just did not know how to get out of the relationship. I felt so guilty. Um, and a therapist at the time suggested SLAA. So I started going to meetings, which he did not like. Um, and I just, I remember going there and just crying and crying. And I, I remember like, I had lost all this weight because I wasn't eating. I just felt like I was like a shell of myself because I was in this relationship with somebody that I didn't like or respect. who was emotionally abusive, but I felt like I, I was so afraid to leave because he had left his wife for me because I was so afraid of what other people would think because I felt like I owed him something. Um, so yeah, I got into SLAA, I got a sponsor. Um, by this point, he broke up with me. Um, I remember he talked to me about sleeping with his wife the next day. And that was like, that, that was like a hook for me. You know, there was just like, I, I started going into like before a recall of like, maybe this person was the one, maybe I was crazy. 
maybe I was doing things wrong, you know, um, but I got a sponsor and I started talking to people in the program and they were like, you know, uh, it sounds like you need to be here. And, you know, if you, you know, I, I could not do no contacts, like for a week, I was like, no way, there's no way I can't talk to this person for a week, even though I hated him the week before. Um, and they, you know, my sponsor at the time was like, if you can't do a week, start with a day, start with an hour. You know, another person, the program member was like, just focus on your top line behaviors. And for the first time in my life, you know, I started to do things like, you know, I would go to a bathhouse, like, uh, like to, to like soak in the springs. Cause there are a lot of those in, in the Bay area. Um, I started hanging out with, um, female friends, you know, um, those relationships, I, I all had always been like a feminist, but I had never really prioritized my relationships with women, but I started to actually think about like, what would it be like to have a relationship that wasn't filled with drama and chaos and a life that wasn't filled with drama and chaos. So God saved me from that relationship slowly, but surely, um, I was able to pull away. I did connect back with my other qualifier basically I did everything to act out in the program initially, you know, I was a stubborn addict. Um, I got into a relationship with a woman, you know, I told my sponsor, like, I think I'm, I'm queer as well. And she was like, yeah, a lot of people figure that out in the program. Like, it doesn't mean you need to act on it, but I got into a relationship with a woman. It also, you know, she was somebody I did not want to be with long-term, but I felt a lot of guilt leaving. Um, and then I was still in touch with my qualifier, you know? So I was just like, you know, rain checking back to back, you know, until I found out that he was having a child with somebody else. And he had called me one day and he was like, I think we should be together. And I was like, I, I don't know. Like we've said this a lot of times. And then I guess the next week he met somebody else. And then a couple of months later they got married and he had a child. And that just, when I heard that he had had a child after we had had multiple abortions, um, something in me just broke open. And I was just like, okay, God, like I'm done. I cannot use people to fill this void. Like, I cannot deny this pain anymore. Like, I'm ready to go no contact with this person, and I'm ready to date myself. Like, I have to be with myself because this is too painful. Um, so I did a year and a half of dating myself. I say that because that's really what it was, just seeing myself day in, day out. And I remember, like, it was so painful. But, you know, I think, you know, the, the saw the saw book talks about it. It's like, it's a new pain. It's not this just like familiar pain that I would feel every day, like knowing that something was missing in my life. Um, it was a new pain. And, and what I would like, what I was withdrawing towards was myself. Um, yeah, I was also working the steps. Um, I will say it took me a long time to get through step four. I did not think I had resentments towards people because I was so deep into people pleasing so that they wouldn't leave me. But yeah, um, that year and a half was like one of the hardest periods of my life. You know, I was also living alone, but it was really rich. And by the end, I, I actually was like, I, I think I want a relationship, but I don't think I need one. My life is so full. You know, I had so many friends, so many relationships. Um, before I got into this program, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I just like, I remember hearing like the slogan for slaw is like, get a life. And that's totally what I did. Like before I got into this program, I didn't have a life. My life was basically based on like who you wanted me to be, you know, and like I would drop something career wise or work wise to tend to a partner, you know, I would spend all my money in a partner. Um, anyway, like all of my interests, I would drop at a drop of a hat for my partner. 
so yeah, by the time I was done with my year and a half of no dating, there were just all these things I was doing for myself. I had so many hobbies. Um, you know, I just like loved my life um, and I loved myself. And then higher power kind of threw me a curveball. I had planned to move back to the East Coast um, to be closer to my family and because I was I was kind of tired of the hustle of the Bay. And I had started dating. I had gone on some dates on apps and it was pretty challenging, you know, but I showed up and I did it. And I talked to my sponsor about that at the time. And then a week before I was supposed to move, um, I had planned on going on three months of um, like artistic study in Mexico and then moved to, to, um, to uh, Pennsylvania. I met my partner and that's where, you know, I thought I had had some recovery, but then partnership is like a whole other level for me, you know, learning to stay with myself and not abandon myself. You know, my partner is the first person I've been with that is emotionally available, that is committed to partnership. He's somebody that I like and respect, but you know, my addict is really stubborn and it will find ways, you know, I, I don't, I don't dream of acting out anymore, but I, I still struggle with acting in and um, my avoidance and sort of like running away from the relationship, you know, because my addict wants things to be easy. Um, my addict thinks if things are hard, they're wrong. So anyway, my partner and I decided to be together. I moved to Houston and then we moved to Philadelphia. Uh, once we realized we were pregnant, I had a child. Again, I was like, I thought that I thought recovery was challenging before, but having a child, it's like all of my attachment stuff, all of my stuff around relationships and partnership and feel, fear of abandonment came up like tenfold because I wasn't sleeping well, you know, and it's like, I just realizing, you know, um, it's, it was, it was just so much work, you know, being in a house with this person committing to showing up one day at a time, you know. Um, I really, really had to keep making outreach calls, working my program. I worked the steps in this program two times. Um, I will say like steps 10, 11, and 12, um, particularly 10 and 11, like save my life every day because I still want to burn my life down all the time. You know, that is just my, my familiarity with destruction, with chaos is so deep that I still want to burn it down. Um, and right now I'm actually in some like amends processes with my partner because I'm seeing that that has really come up during the pandemic because I've been stressed and scared. My defects have come up. But yeah, I guess I'll just say, you know, like this program has given me my life back. I feel like if I wasn't in this program, I, I, my, my life would be shallow, slim, like, or I, would, I just wouldn't be alive, you know, because there's been so many times where I was just like, you know, this person broke up with me and I was just like, I don't want to live anymore. And that's not the case anymore. Like, I, I know no matter what, I'm going to be okay. I have a relationship with loving higher, higher power. You know, it's not that like patriarchal figure that's going to punish me that I grew up with. You know, I, I, I love myself, you know, and that, and that looks different every day, but you know, I'm really grateful for this program. I've learned how to have relationships with people. Um, I've learned how to trust myself. I've, I'm learning how to trust people. Um, that's a big thing. So I think that's, that's where I will stop. Hopefully I've said something of service. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.